It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, Michael Brown here, delighted to be with you on today's Line of Fire. I won't be taking calls today. This is one of the special shows we're doing while I'm in Israel. While I will not be taking calls, but we're going to dive into the word together. Many of you may have seen my debate with Professor Dale Tuggy, philosopher, Professor Dale Tuggy, Trinity denying professor. His group reached out to me eager to do a debate on the subject, according to the Bible, is the Father alone the true God? And they offered to fly me up to Minnesota, was it, and debate Dr. Tug. I didn't know who he was at that point, but I said, I'm really not able just to fly in for one night, fly back, schedule doesn't permit that. If he's ever in my area, we're glad to host it. And they said, yeah, we'd, we'd love to do that. We'll fly in, we'll bring a camera crew, the whole bit. And so when they were that eager to do it, I said, well, of course, let's, let's have the debate. And I have to be candid with you. When I do a debate, it's not a personal issue. It's not a matter of me winning or trying to make the other person look bad or look wrong. I'm jealous for the truth. I'm jealous for the Lord. I'm jealous for the gospel. And in this case, I was grieved over the denial of the deity of the son, the glory of the son, the one and only of the father. And I really prayed that God would enable me to exalt Jesus, to exalt the Son. If you haven't watched the debate, so it's my preference that in a doctrinal controversy or social moral controversy, that we present as much as we can in debate format so people can see both sides and see the arguments. To me, we've got nothing to hide. Let's bring all the truth to light. And then I don't need to endlessly go through the debate and, and answer things again, because obviously I want to do it adequately within the context of the debate itself. There are debates I've been involved with years back. And to this day, people are still putting out videos about the debate and supplemental notes and, and then, you know, hours and hours and hours to justify their position. I'm thinking, obviously, you can't feel you did that well in the context of the debate itself, presenting the evidence if you got to spend hours and hours and hours and hours later to prove your point. That being said, what I want to do is open up some of the truths that, that were discussed in the debate. So I'm not revisiting the debate. That stands for itself. What I'm doing is going back into some of the scriptures. And, and let me explain something. Growing up in a Jewish home, even though I was not a, a religious Jew, a traditional Jew, there's still a concept. Jews believe in one God and very zealous in that faith. And that's fundamental. And Jews through the ages have died rather than convert to Christianity or convert to Islam. Now, Islam, there's still an emphasis on one God, but they would have to deny their Jewish faith to convert to Islam. With Christianity, there'd be the perception that it was somehow idolatrous, that God was made into a man or a man made into a God, or the God was somehow three. So because of that, there's a consciousness as a Jew that there is this one God and one God only, even though I was not a religious Jew when I came to faith. Well, now I'm told, well, Jesus is God. There's a Trinity. Okay. Is, is there? Is that what the Bible says? See, I came to faith 
in an Italian Pentecostal church. And there's, there's a joke that I learned when I was in Italy ministering among Italian Pentecostals, that they have one tradition and one tradition only. If the Catholics do it, we don't. <laughs> so in other words, I grew up in an environment that made clear that we're not Catholics. Most of the people in the church were former Catholics. I don't say this to bash Catholics. I'm just saying that's the environment in which I came to faith. And the whole idea of the creeds of the church and all that, I was not familiar with that. And then early on as a brand new believer, the local rabbi who befriended me gives me a book and, and the book is on anti-Semitism in church history. So I'm brand new. I don't know church history. I'm Jewish coming in. So it's like, well, I, well, these guys were bad guys. Well, I'll just stay with the Bible. So that's, that's where I started. And then being challenged by Jews, well, how can you believe this? How can Jesus be God? And then meeting Jehovah's Witnesses and them challenging me. So I, I just thought, well, what does the Bible say? That's my only issue. And that remains my only issue. It is not to speak disparagingly of all the church through history. Thank God for his people, for his body through the ages. Thank God for the insights he's given to his people. But ultimately, if you are a Protestant, if you are a Messianic Jew, ultimately, you agree that the final authority is Scripture. So that's my issue. What does Scripture say? So in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, God's dealing with the idols of the world, all right? He's dealing with his Jewish people in captivity, and he's speaking judgment on the idols of the world. He says, I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Now, You'd say, right. So in context, it means God will not allow idols to take credit for what he does. And his glory is given, uh, if his glory is given to an idol, then that is profane. No, he doesn't give his glory to any other. The issue, however, was that that was the only other competition, the idols. In other words, the other false gods were the competition. The question is, does God give his glory to another? So that other is worshiped as God or adored as God. I've had this conversation many a time with traditional Jews, with ultra-Orthodox Jews, with zealous, devoted rabbis. And they will say to me that my heart is divided because I love Jesus and I love God, because I praise Jesus and I praise God, because some of my affection goes to the one who saved me and bled for me. Surely every Christian is going to have an intense loving affection for the Savior who bled and died and is going to praise Jesus and thank Jesus. And, and yet our allegiance should be to God alone. Well, I tell them, it is to God alone. Jesus Yeshua is God. If, if, if he wasn't, if he wasn't God in the flesh, I, I could not give him that devotion. I could not give him that love. I could not give him that adoration. And I believe that's part of the issue here. God's saying, I'm not going to share my glory with anyone else. Now, Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, beautiful verses. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I do not believe based on scripture that any created being is worthy of receiving all of that. 
as I read scripture and understand it, I do not see any created being, let alone a glorified man, just flesh and blood, human being, but now glorified. I do not see any evidence anywhere that a human being can get that level of praise, adoration, worship. It's, it's one thing to bow before an earthly ruler. It's, it's one thing to say, oh, honor belongs to you, oh, great king. It's, it's one thing to fall at someone's feet and kiss them. That These are things done in ancient Near East or different parts of this world to this day. It's, it's one thing to come with riches and treasure and give it to an earthly person. But angels singing this to a, a, a man, a mortal? Yikes. But then look at this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, so all the created universe, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So notice the worship, the honor, the adoration that's coming is identical. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So the identical glory is being given to the Lamb and to the one who sits on the throne. If the Lamb is a created being, if the Son of God is a created being, a first created angel like Jehovah's Witnesses would believe, or a glorified man, as the so-called biblical Unitarians would believe. I call them so-called because their views are not biblical. Then this is idolatrous. Then this is now dividing our hearts between the lamb and God. If the lamb himself is eternal God, then there's no division whatsoever. I think that is very, very clear, wonderfully clear. So either God has gone back on his word and another created being is sharing in his unique honor and glory, or the Son is one with the Father, equally God. And note here that all creation worships the Lamb, meaning that he himself is not created. All right, <clears throat> let's, let's go down and, and <clears throat> look again in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, 40 through 48. And, and what you'll see is that God repeatedly says, I am, I am he, I am he, I am he, I am he. All right, I am, I am he. In Greek, so... The Hebrew Bible translated into Greek called the Septuagint, ego eimi, ego eimi. I am, I am he. All right. So for example, and I give you <clears throat> lots of examples from these chapters. Isaiah 48, 12. I am he. So in Hebrew, anihu, in Greek, ego eimi. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Now, what does Jesus say in John eight fifty eight? When, when he says, hey, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he's dealing with these, these, these Jewish men in Jerusalem. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was glad. And they said, you're not yet 50 years old. How, how, how did Abraham see you? How, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the logical thing, if he was talking about pre-existing and maybe in, in the concept, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was known or I, I was anticipated, or I was destined or predestined. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say before Abraham was, I was, which would be the normal way of saying I existed first, but rather before Abraham was, I am. And what do the Jewish hearers do? They pick up stones to stone him. They, they knew what he was saying. They knew the outrageousness of the claim. But look, 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 look. God, speaking of himself in his eternity, in his majesty, says of himself, I am he, I am the first, and I'm the last. Revelation 26, the Father speaking. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Right? The Father says that. Only eternal God can say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Created being cannot say that. All right? Revelation 22, 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. <laughs> he is giving himself an exact identification with Yahweh in these chapters in Isaiah 40 through 48, with the God of Israel. He is identifying himself here as having the same eternal nature as the Father in the book of Revelation. That's what John is doing. No created being can say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. Cannot be. It's impossible. You'd be lying because you're not the Alpha and Omega. You're not the beginning and the end. You're not the first and the last. Only God is. And since Jesus says it, and what is the conclusion? He is God in the flesh. We'll be right back. God of light, hear our cry. Send the fire. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. I'm in the midst of our Israel tour, our third Israel tour. God willing, we'll do them again in the future, and you'll be able to join with us on a future trip. But I'm not taking calls today. This is one of those teaching, digging into the word days. And I'm opening up some of the statements from my opening presentation in the debate on, is the Father alone the true God according to the Bible? with Professor Dale Tuggy. If you haven't watched the debate, please do. It's on our YouTube channel or on our digital library at askdrbrown.org or askdrbrown on YouTube. All right. <clears throat> there are many parallels between the God of the Old Testament and the Son, Jesus, in the New Testament. So, for example, that it's God's words that will not pass away in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses seven and eight, whereas it's the words of Yeshua, Jesus, that will not pass away according to Matthew 24, 35. So just as Jesus takes on the exact same eternal nature as the Father expresses that exact nature in Revelation saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, which again, no created being can say, could you imagine an angel making that proclamation? Like, who, who are you? Who do you think you are? Oh, of course not. Of course not. So this being clear from scripture, even the unique actions of God to save and deliver Israel. Yes, he worked through earthly deliverers. He worked through earthly judges and kings and others that delivered Israel and quote, saved Israel. But in terms of redeeming them from Egypt, in terms of redeeming them from sin, in terms of setting them free from captivity, in terms of bringing them from darkness into light, there was only one savior. Only one. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. What about Jesus, who is referred to as our Savior over and over in the New Testament? Numerous times referred to as our Savior. His very name speaks of Yahweh's saving, Yeshua. So what about him? Well, it's God at work. It is God in the Son. Jesus says, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. And what does Paul write in Titus 2.13? The, the Greek grammar is quite clear. He refers to, quote, our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. 
if you wanted to speak of two different personages, it's easy to do it. Our great God and make it a separate concept and our Savior, Jesus. When it is written, our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, he is calling Jesus, not just our Savior, but our God. God alone a Savior. It makes sense, doesn't it? And, and then look at this. This is really fascinating. There's a lot to learn when you look at Isaiah 40 through 48 and then go from there back into the New Testament because God is showing that he is the great and only God. These are the strongest passages from monotheism anywhere in the Bible, exalting the one and only God of the universe. I'm a strict monotheist. I do not worship other gods. I do not bow down to other gods. I don't give my devotion and affection to other gods. One God only who has made himself known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, if you want to say one being, three persons, that's fine. But because I was not debating the nature of the Trinity, I was not debating the creeds, I was not debating different expressions of God's triunity. The debate was, is the Father alone the true God according to the Bible? All I had to show was that the Son is also the true God according to the Bible. I demonstrated as well briefly that the Spirit is also true God. But Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, besides me there is no Savior. Now Isaiah 44, 24, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone, got that? Who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself. He did it by himself. He, he, he didn't do it through angels. He didn't do it through other intermediaries because the creation, he was the only one there right? And, and, and if he's creating, then the angels are spectators. If he created angels and then created the earth and they're rejoicing, you know, the passages in Job would indicate that they're the spectators. Whoa, incredible. Look, whoa, look at what, wow. They're rejoicing and singing and praising and adoring. What does the new Testament say? John 1, 1, it starts with the language of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible opens with the words Breshit bara Elohim et et which is traditionally translated in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Greek says NRK, in the beginning, a way of beginning. How does John 1 1 render it? In the beginning, NRK. So here he is clearly and emphatically, clearly and emphatically putting his stamp and saying, this is the creation at the beginning. Genesis 1.1. Now I'm going to give you more insight. What does it say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, the word was a God. First, it's not a good way to render the Greek. The word was a God. So then they have several gods. They have the, the main God and then this lesser God through whom things were created. So... <clears throat> What, what do we make of this? A good way to translate John 1, 1 to convey what the Greek is saying. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And what God was, the word was. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And then a few verses later in the chapter, <clears throat> he came into the world. The world was made by him. Who the word, the son, the word who became flesh. So John 1, 1 makes it absolutely clear. All things were made through him 
Without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of man. I, I thought in Isaiah 44, when God created, he created all by himself. He did. One God, Father, Son, Spirit. But this is telling us someone else is there. If that's not God, if that's not the divine son, then somebody else was there. And, and Isaiah 44 is not true because God did not create the world by himself. <clears throat> that's why John 1.30 John the Immerser says that Jesus ranks before me because he was before me. That's why Jesus said, and <clears throat> lots of verses for this, John 3.13, John 6.38, John 6.41, John 8.23, John 13.3, that he was from above. Also, John 17 references this. He was from above. He came down from heaven. He came from God. He was returning to God. Of course, he's preexistent. Of course, he was sent into this world. He was not just created when he was born in the womb of Miriam, rather the son took on human form through the womb of Miriam and became Jesus. The son eternal becomes flesh and blood in the womb of Mary, Miriam, and is known to us now as Jesus. That's why Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 8, yet for us, there is one God, the father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So the Father being the source of all things, hence known as the Father. And one Lord, Jesus the Messiah, through whom are all things. Just what we saw in John 1.1. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. All right? So one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus. Now, is the Father called Lord in our translations over 6,000 times in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, name Yahweh, traditionally Jehovah, becomes Lord in our English Bibles, but also in ancient Greek Bibles and things. So here, people reading the, the Hebrew Bible in Greek, reading the Septuagint, they see Lord Kurios almost 7,000 times referring to the one true God. Now that's the principal title of Jesus in the New Testament. Is the Father no longer Lord? No, of course he's Lord, but he's primarily known as God in the New Testament. Is the Son not God? And of course he's God, but he's primarily known as Lord in the New Testament. All things from the Father through the Son. Okay? And, and then Colossians 1, 16 to 17. For by him, speaking of the Son, all things were created. It's pretty clear. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones, with dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, I am often confronted with other positions and challenged in what I believe. And it's been the, that way for 47 years. I've not existed in a spiritual cocoon. As soon as I was saved, my dad said, great, you're off drugs. You need to talk to the local rabbi. Day one, I was challenged. And then meeting people from the cults. And then in my high school, we were into all kinds of the Eastern religion, transcendental meditation, all paths lead to God. And we'd have these different speakers come in and speak to the students because we had this weird little group within our school that had its own school. That's another story. So always, cha always challenge. And then I went only to secular university. So no one, not a single professor ever through, through, through my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, my PhD, not a single professor I ever studied with ever agreed with my faith. Not one, not one, not one to my knowledge was a born again believer. 
Not one of the Jewish scholars I studied with agreed with what I believe. Not one. And some were downright hostile to the faith or very skeptical about the authority of Scripture or, or anything like that. Some were very secular in their approach. And then I studied with other professors from other backgrounds. My faith was always challenged. And then I'm always being challenged to debate. So I'm constantly being confronted with other positions and doing my best to look at them and evaluate them. And one of the best ways to expose error is when you, have, when you see the most convoluted and ridiculous explanations, impossible explanations, explanations that take simple texts and turn them upside down and twist them to try to make them mean something else, then you say, ah, oh, okay, th that view is bankrupt. The same thing with interpretations for these verses that I presented about the sun being involved with the creation of the world. Undeniable in terms of what's spoken of here in the beginning, before all things, creation came through the sun. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire broadcast. Michael Brown, not taking your calls today. This is one of our special Israel broadcasts that we prepared for you, but I won't be taking calls on this show as I'm with our tour group in Israel as I say it, my impulse is to give you our number. That's just the normal reflex. But I just told you we're not taking calls. But sit back as we bathe you in the word of God and the glorious truths of the eternal deity of the Son. You know, I I don't personally get confused about, well, do I pray to the Father in Jesus' name? Well, what about the Spirit? No, I, I understand how God relates to us and calls us to relate to him. So he comes into our midst in a way that is touchable, tangible through his son. As First as John says, the word of life, we, we've touched him. We, we've touched him. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We, we've touched him. We've lived with him. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. But you see, that's always how the father revealed himself. That's why in, in numerous cases in the Hebrew Bible, God appears and people see him. In some cases, Genesis 18, the, the most graphic, he, he's there having a meal with Abraham and talking with him at length and then walking away and leaving so, so he can visit us. He can come into our midst in human form. It's the son who makes the father known. So on the one hand, God's never been seen, but he has been seen. Why? Because the father remains hidden. The father, the source of all things manifest through the sun. That's what the sun does. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his, of his image, Hebrews 1, right? So he shines forth the Father's glory, and then the Spirit works among us invisibly. No one sees the Spirit, right? The Spirit is poured out. The Spirit works in our midst. The Spirit teaches and instructs and leads and guides. The Spirit is not just a power, but a person. But he's the unseen one. Why? Because he draws all attention to Jesus, because that's how God is known. So how is it that millions, hundreds of millions of former idol worshipers around the world have come to know the God of Israel through the Son. He is that holy magnet that draws praise and adoration to God. As I'm praising and adoring Jesus, that is glory to God. So I pray my normal prayers to the Father through the Son, empowered by the Spirit, 
But I could also cry out, Jesus, help. Jesus, save me. He's the Savior. He works. And God's like, why did you pray to Jesus that time instead of praying to the Father? No, God's not looking at it like that. He just wants us to relate to him and know him as Father. And then we see him fully expressed through Jesus. So that's why John 5, 23, it's the Father's will. Jesus said that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, now look, you may send a messenger. You may send a messenger on your behalf. And you want that messenger to be treated with the same dignity that you're treated, right? That person represents you. That's why ambassadors with different countries have certain immunities because they are representing their country on a given special status. But, but let's consider this. If you, you're a married man with kids, right? And you send your ambassador, your messenger, who's representing you, and you send them with a message on your behalf. Okay, so I'm, I'm supposed to respect that person as if it was you. But that person's not married to your wife. That person's not the parent of your children. That, that, that person is still not you. And I cannot honor them the same way I honor you because you are also all these other things. Yet the son is honored the same way as the father is. In John 17, 5, look at what Jesus says. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow. So, I mean, text uh, uh, remarkably clear there. Jesus is saying that he existed before creation, before the world existed. He enjoyed God's presence. He enjoyed the glory of God. They shared it together. He is eternally pre existent. That's why Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus exists in the form of God, that he emptied himself and became a servant, dying for us. And as Dr. James White has pointed out, this is given to us as an example of humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Jesus. Though so even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't take advantage of that. He didn't hold on to that, but rather emptied himself, becoming taking on the form of a servant and then dying a criminal's death on our behalf. So if, in fact, he wasn't God, then how is it humble to, to not take advantage of being God or hold on to one's deity? If you weren't God, you just thought you were God. How is it an example of humility to humble yourself and lower yourself and take on the form of a human being? If you're just a human being, how is it humility to be a human being? <clears throat> so obviously, Paul makes his point powerfully there. And then... Isaiah 45, 23, where God swears that every knee will bow to him and every tongue swear to him. Paul applies this verse to Jesus, saying every knee will bow to Jesus, Yeshua. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Yes, it's to the glory of the Father, but that is confessing to him. You are Lord, but that was to Yahweh. If I'm saying to Jesus, you are Lord, just as I would have said it to Yahweh, bowing down to him. If he's not Lord, if he's not Yahweh, then that's not to the glory of the Father. That's blasphemy. Very clear again, very powerful that the implications are absolutely massive. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 23 could say that he had longed to gather people of Jerusalem together as a hen gathers with chicks under her wings. He'd longed to do that. No, it's through history. This was, this was the, the Son of God reaching out, reaching out, reaching out, reaching out. And that's why Hebrews 1.8 quotes Psalm 45.7 
Hebrew kisachalohim lalamva ed your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And by the way, when I was first learning Hebrew in college, I'd learned a little to be bar mitzvah, but very little. I forgot most of it. Now I'm in college and, and learning modern Hebrew, but got a textbook, Thomas Lambden's Hebrew Grammar. A rabbi recommended it. So I, I taught myself biblical Hebrew through Lambden, went through all the exercises in the book and, and the detailed explanations, et cetera, while learning modern Hebrew in college. And I remember I, I went to, to talk to my Hebrew teacher one day, my professor, who was also a rabbi. And I, I said to him, could you translate this verse for me? Psalm 45, 7. So he, he looks at it in Hebrew, reads it, Elohim and he says, yes, praises to the Almighty. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I said, uh, could, you, uh, could you read the context here? I remember as he did, he got red in the face. Because the context is speaking of a king. It, it's ultimately a messianic psalm. And that's the only way it can have its full meaning. That this king is only a divine one called God because he is God. And, and I just remember because his Hebrew was massively better than mine at that point. So isn't that interesting? When he just read the verse by itself, he knew exactly what it said. So this is now quoted with reference to the son who is superior to the angels because this has to be laid out because he's taken on human form. Who is this son? This is written to other Jewish believers. All right. So it says about him, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And I checked dozens of major English translations before this, and that, that is clearly how it is translated. And, and, then, and then Hebrews 1 quotes from Psalm 102, speaking of God's works in Hebrew beforehand, of old, in Greek, in the beginning. All right? You, Lord, this is to the Son, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Actually, there are people who try to deny the deity of the Son. It says, yeah, this creation in the beginning is actually a new creation in the future. I mean, that's, that's how much you have to take this text, turn it upside down, and make it say things it cannot possibly say. I don't, I'm just reading the words. It's giving scripture. And by the way, if I wanted to quote machine gun in my opening presentation in my debate on the nature of God, if I wanted the machine gun, I just could have quoted references, boom, 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 and multiplied it by two, three, four times. And this verse and this, what I did is I quoted lots and lots of verses because I wanted people to hear what the word said. I, if I was machine gunning, I would have just massively added to this. Now I was trying to give verses and quote, take the time to quote them, read passages so people could hear them with their own ears. So Psalm 102, this is applied to the sun. Right after it is said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever to the sun and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. Not, not a future new heaven and earth. You don't create a future new heaven and earth in the beginning. Now this is talking about the earthly creation. And look what it says. They will perish. What the current heaven and earth, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out, wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. Who, who does this except God? Who does this except God? A glorified man doesn't do any of this, please. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Who's that talking about? God, God, and only God. You can't say this to an angel. You, this is God alone, the Son, the eternal creator, who always was and always will be, is what Scripture says. And then in the Old Testament, of course, 
one of the most famous messianic prophecies in Isaiah 9, he's called El Gibor, Mighty God. And it's interesting to read traditional Jewish interpretations and translations that, that wrestle with this. Now, sometimes, sometimes the name of the child reflects the child. You know, call him Esau or Edom. You know, he's look at his his you know his skin color. He's hairy or this or that. Or he's grabbing the ankle, and the name refers to that. Other times, it is about God. So Elijah Eliyahu, my God is Yahweh. All right, but here these are titles being put on the son. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, obviously referring to him, and then explains why and what follows. One of his titles is El Gibor, Mighty God, which is the title of Yahweh in Isaiah 10, 21. The Son is called God. And by the way, it's best there not to translate that he's called Everlasting Father, but rather Father forever, meaning King over the nation, Father forever, or Possessor of Eternity, another potential meaning of Father. That's why Thomas, after Jesus rises from the dead, remember he was doubting, now that he understands, after the resurrection, the disciples' eyes are opened even more. What does he cry out to the resurrected Messiah? My Lord and my God. And, and when you read some of the explanations, oh, it was like, oh, my Lord and my God. Well, it was like kind of using the name of the Lord in vain. Was that it? Or one explanation, he said to Jesus, my Lord. Then he looked up and said, my God. You hear that, you think, obviously, uh, you just defeated yourself with those arguments. What does Jesus say in the next verse? Don't call me. Don't say to me, my Lord and my God. Don't say that. No, what does he say? Now that you see me, you believe? You finally get it now? Yes, there's only one that we worship as my Lord and my God. Not two, not four, not eight. What do I mean? One God only. Yes, Father, Son, Spirit, but one God only. There's only one that has my adoration as God. There's only one who is my Lord and my God, almighty, eternal God. That's it. My heart is not divided. We'll be back. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, I, I want to be totally candid up front with you. When I was preparing for the debate with Dale Tuggy on Is the Father Alone the True God? Even though I was familiar with the scriptural evidence, even though I was familiar with the scriptural arguments about the Son's eternal deity, I have to tell you, as I really prayed and then dug into the Word afresh, I was blown away. I was blown away by how decisively, how frequently God makes Himself clear on this issue. And then when we look at the larger picture of the nature of God, so one eternal being, in three persons. Again, that's using human language when we speak of persons in terms of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When you look at it, you think that well, you end up, you get on your face and you worship. You worship God. Wow. Amazing. Glorious. Beautiful. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 2 9 that in, in the Son, in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. That cannot be said of any created being. The fullness of God dwelt in him in bodily form. That's why 2 Peter 1.1, again, just the plain, clear reading of the Greek, speaks about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. He is our God and our Savior, Peter says it. Some of the early church leaders use that very same language. The disciples of the apostles 
referred explicitly to the deity of the son. Explicitly, they referred to it. And, and Paul, the most likely rendering, make an excellent case for it in Romans 9, 5, that he refers to Messiah as God overall, blessed forever, praised forever. And then 1 John 5, 20, the most likely grammatical understanding is that John is telling us that Jesus is the, quote, true God, the true God. That's why John 14, Jesus says the Father's in him and he's in the Father. That's unique, that relationship. That's why in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, Paul identifies the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ. And, and check these prayers out. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 2. Listen to the language. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now, here's what's interesting. One, he's praying to the Father and to Jesus. Why, why pray to Jesus? Why, why include Jesus in a prayer to the Father unless Jesus himself is, is deity? Why do you do that? Is it like Catholic saints? You pray to the saints as well? And No, this is a prayer directed to God, but he includes Jesus. Not only so, not only so, he uses a singular verb in the Greek. Now, elsewhere, if it's used in singular, it would be like a term flesh and blood, right? In other words, flesh and blood seen as one thing, humanity. So this is quite unique. It's jarring. It gets your attention. But even more clear, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Paul puts Jesus first in prayer. Look at this. uses a singular verb again. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May Jesus and the Father comfort your hearts with a singular verb. Because they're one. And, and because you can also pray to Jesus. Stephen does. Acts 7.59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We're taught to pray Maranatha, Maranatha in Aramaic. Our Lord come. Revelation 22.20. Even so, come Lord Jesus. These are prayers to Jesus. John 14, 14, although we principally pray to the Father, Jesus said, if you ask me for anything, I'll do it. That's why Revelation 22, get this, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the New Jerusalem. Notice it doesn't say the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb will both be in the New Jerusalem. No, the throne of God and of the Lamb. How many thrones? One, one will be in Jerusalem, in the New Jerusalem. And his servants, not their servants, his servants will worship him. Who? The throne of God and of the Lamb. They will worship him. They will serve him. Hmm. Sounds like one God, doesn't it? Sounds like the Lamb is also God. Revelation 22, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, not their faces, and his name, not their names, will be on their foreheads. That's what the word says. Wonderful and glorious. That's why Zechariah 14 tells us that Yahweh's feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives at the end of this age. But Acts 1 tells us that the son, Jesus, will return just as he left. He's going to come back down to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 says when he does, those are Yahweh's feet touching. Huh. What's the deduction from there? The son is God himself. And, and notice, notice, 
not only do we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, if the Son is just a created being, if he's some exalted angel, if he's a glorified man, why does he get his name in between the, the, the Father and the Spirit? Why? Why in the world would you want to do that? And not only so, Jesus tells us in, in Matthew and in Luke that the only way anyone can know the Father is if the Son decides to reveal him. And, and that only the Son really knows the Father, only the Son, the, the Father only knows the Son, and the Son only knows the Father. That's, that's not what you say about a glorified man. Glorified man does not know God the way God knows them. But Jesus says the Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son, and the Son is the one who decides to whom he will reveal the Father. When it comes to the Spirit, and I, I could have spent hours on this in the debate, obviously in a debate you're, you're limited in time. That's why I presented as much as I could. So here I just gave references because I didn't have time to quote all the verses. But Acts 5, lying to the Spirit is lying to God. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Why did you lie to God? Why did you lie to the Spirit? Can you lie to a thing? Can you lie to a rock? Can you lie to a bench? Can you lie to the wind? Can, can you lie to a power? No, you lie to a person. Lying to God is lying to the Spirit. Lying to the Spirit is lying to God. That's why the Scripture says that the Spirit can be grieved. Here, watch this. Listen to this. I'm, I'm pounding my, my desk here. I'm not grieving it. It's, it's just a desk. It's just a desk. Okay, I'm, I'm grabbing the mic here. I'm not grieving it. It's just, it, it's a metal contraption, all right? But the spirit can be grieved. Isaiah 63, 10, Ephesians 4, 30. And the spirit teaches, in, in the Bible, teaches, guides, speaks, intercedes, in Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes for us with unutterable groanings. And, and God knows the mind of the Spirit. Mind of the Spirit? Hmm. The Spirit teaches, guides, speaks, intercedes, appoints leaders, bears witness. So 2 Samuel 23, 3, Nehemiah 9, 19, Romans. I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. The Spirit is manifest through wisdom and knowledge. First Chronicles 28, 11, and 12. First Corinthians 12, 7, and 8. The Spirit is eternal. Hebrews 9, 14. Romans 15, 30 speaks of the love of the Spirit. Paul gives this benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Are you intimate with the Holy Spirit? Do you have deep fellowship with the Holy Spirit? That's not a power. That's not a thing. This is a being. That's why, again, spirit can be grieved. Spirit teaches, leads. Acts 13, the spirit says, separate from me. Saul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, separate them from me. Spirit speaking there. Oh, it's just it's this beautiful, wonderful truth. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth. So three separate persons here, Father, Son, Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Isn't that just a power? He will testify about me. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. It's beautiful. That's why blasphemy against the Spirit is, is an unforgivable sin. That the Spirit is the one bringing God near and representing him. That's why he's called Lord in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. As Jesus is the Lord of glory, gets crucified in 1 Corinthians 2. Again, not a, not a man, but the Lord of glory. But the Spirit 
is the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And a, a, a passage I, I referenced, beautiful passage in, in John 12, Jesus is, is, is talking to Jewish leaders. And then John speaks of them and then quotes from Isaiah 6, how their, their hearts are hardened. And it says that Isaiah said this when he saw God's glory, when he saw the Messiah's glory. And he quotes Isaiah 53, references that, Jesus dying for our sins, and then references Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And who did he see there? Yahweh. Yahweh. I'm going to die. I've I've seen Yahweh. I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And, And John tells us in John 12 that when he saw him, Yahweh in Isaiah 6, he saw the Son because the Father's never been seen, but the Son is seen. That's what the Word says. Look, maybe you had a problem with church. You didn't just want to be Catholic or follow Protestant tradition and you just want to be scriptural and you heard these so-called biblical Unitarians and you said, man, I think they're right. Throw that out and go back to the Bible. Throw it out and go back to the Bible. And the Bible clearly speaks of the eternal nature of the Son. You say, well, I heard your arguments before because they're true. I was not trying to create something new. I was trying to open up what scripture says and had the joy of quoting Genesis 48, 15 and 16, where Jacob describes God as the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, the Malach, the messenger. Then he says, may he bless one God, one God also identified as the angel who redeemed me from all harm. May he bless these little ones. May he bless you the knowledge of the truth. Much more on my website. Go to askdrbrown, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Visit us. 